Did the exodus actually happen? This is Evidence and Answers with scholar, author, and apologist Pat Zuckerman, who defends the Christian faith all over the world. And today on Evidence and Answers, Pat Zuckerman's special guest. Yes, Kevin, with me today, we have a special guest, a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. Eugene Merrill. He's written several commentaries on the Old Testament, and a great book that we highly recommend here is his commentary on the history of Old Testament Israel, a kingdom of priest, an excellent overview of the Old Testament. And Dr. Eugene Merrill has been a professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary for many years. And so, Dr. Merrill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. We're talking about the Exodus today, and many skeptics deny that the Exodus is actually a historical event. Now, Dr. Merrill, I personally uh, believe in the Exodus because I have had an Exodus experience taking Hebrew 101 there at Dallas Seminary. Going through Hebrew syntax and grammar was like going through the plagues of Egypt. And when I finally passed the final exam, I think I got a C minus, minus, minus. It was like a miracle, parting of the Red Sea. God delivered me. And so that's why I believe in the Exodus. But uh, we have uh, better proof than that for the actual historicity of the Exodus, don't we? Well, we have uh, clearly the record of the Old Testament itself. Now, it is true, we don't have any extra-biblical documentation concerning the Exodus. It is uh, rather mysterious that that has not come about. But when we realize that we have uh, probably only 2% of the documents that existed in ancient Egypt from that period or from surrounding nations, then it's not terribly surprising that the Exodus has not, to this point, been mentioned in secular documents. And we also have some other problems, don't we? I mean, while the Israelites were wandering through the desert, they were mobile. They weren't building cities or any kind of permanent monuments. And also the Egyptians, this is kind of an embarrassment to them, isn't it? They don't want to keep records of, of such a great defeat, would they? No, that's right. And it's not surprising, therefore, that we wouldn't find Egyptian texts uh, making any reference to the Exodus, and you're correct in regard to the lifestyle of the escaping Israelites. They were living in tents. They were uh, highly mobile. They were not a sedentary people at all. So it's not surprising that there'd be no archaeological evidence to this point of uh, at least of a wandering through the uh, Sinai wilderness. Now, I might say, however, that in recent years, uh, there have been some excavations made in the eastern delta area of Egypt in the northern part of the country, which uh, suggest uh, a tremendous uh, concentration of people at that point, and then a sudden, de a sudden decline in that population of that area, which would certainly support the idea of an exodus. And these excavations uh, yield uh, uh, evidence of... Um, of this decline in population occurring at the time that the Bible assigns to the Exodus, sometime around the mid-15th century B.C. Yes, yeah, speaking of the date, now there are two popular dates given for the Exodus. I think most conservative scholars would say it's about 1447 B.C., and others give a date of 1290 B.C. Now, how do scholars arrive at those two dates? Well, the traditional date and the date favored by the Old Testament itself would be the earlier one, around uh, 1446 is the uh, year I would uh, 
assigned to that uh, event. And that's based on um, uh, primarily, again, almost exclusively, I would say, on biblical evidence, uh, and uh, particularly two passages that uh, I think point clearly in that direction. The first of these is in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, which informs us that in Solomon's fourth year, he began the construction of the temple, and that that was 480 years after the Exodus. And uh, we, we know from other uh, chronological uh, research that Solomon began his reign in 971, and so his fourth year would be 967-66. So it's just a matter of adding the 480 years to 966, and we come out with a date of 1446. Now, many scholars do not take this 480 literally. They say it's a multiple of uh, 12 times 40, and that 40 is kind of an ideal number for a generation, so that it was 12 generations. And if a real generation is around 25 years, then you multiply 12 times 25, and you get around 300. And that gives uh, some support, they say, to the later Exodus date. But there is another passage that is almost always overlooked in this discussion, and that's in, uh, in the book of uh, Judges chapter 11 and verse 26, which uh, tells us that uh, Jephthah the judge uh, was in communication with the people on the other side of the Jordan called the Ammonites, and Jephthah uh, told the Ammonites that uh, the Israelites had been in that area for 300 years. Now, the date of Jephthah is at around 1100 B.C., and so if you add the 300 to 1100, you get back to 1400, which would be the date of the beginning of the Israelite conquest of the Transjordan and later on of, uh, of Canaan itself. So you've got two clear biblical texts that point convincingly to the date of 1446 for the Exodus and about 1400 for the conquest. Now, you know, in college and in a lot of uh, maybe more moderate uh, seminaries and among more moderate scholars, they prefer the latter day, 1290 B.C. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, that's based uh, primarily on archaeological evidence, certainly not on the evidence of the biblical text itself, except for one passage, which has been problematic, and that's in the first chapter of Exodus, uh, verse 11. And we're told there that the Israelites were put under slave labor and that they were responsible for helping to build the cities of Pithom and Ramesses. Now, uh, Dynasty 19 of um, Egypt is known as the Ramesside Dynasty, and that indeed took place in the 1200s B.C. So the assumption is that the city of Ramesses was named after the famous Ramesses II, who lived in the 1200s, and consequently in the late 1200s at that, and consequently uh, the Exodus itself must be very late in order to, uh, uh, for the Israelites to have been building a city named after Ramesses II. I watched uh, the Disney movie uh, about Moses, and I've also seen the one with Charlton Heston, and the pharaoh that Moses confronts there is indeed Ramses. 
And I believe that's where they're getting their uh, character from, from this passage here. Well, what is the passage uh, saying if it's not Ramses II? Well, most modern scholars do indeed uh, date the Exodus late in the time of Ramesses. So uh, Cecil B. DeMille and other filmmakers would simply take their cue from these more liberal scholars, and they do not pay any attention to uh, those who would advocate an earlier date. Uh, Frankly, it doesn't matter to me at all when the Exodus took place, but when the Bible speaks so clearly as it does of an earlier date, I don't feel like I have any option. And Now, the way to explain that uh, reference to Ramesses, I think uh, there, there are two or three possibilities. For one thing, we know the name Ramesses existed long before the 1200s B.C. There were certain Hyksos kings who were called Ramesses in a period even earlier than the 15th century. And then secondly, it's very possible that what we have here is the updating of the name of a city which had a different name at the time of the Exodus. And the Holy Spirit then uh, inspired some later editor to replace the archaic name, the older name, with a more modern name of Ramesses. And uh, so it's it's very possible that that's how we explain uh, the reference to that name there as well. I see. Now, if it's not Ramses, then who is the Pharaoh at this time during the Exodus? Well, a careful comparison of the chronology of New Kingdom Egypt with the chronology of the Old Testament would suggest that this Pharaoh is named Amenhotep II. Um, the the um, uh, comparison of these uh, chronological schemes would uh, fit that very, very nicely. And then the uh, events surrounding the reign of Amenhotep II, his predecessor, who is uh, Thutmose III, and his successor, who is uh, Thutmose IV, uh, really uh, confirm, it seems to me, that Amenhotep II is the uh, true pharaoh of the Exodus. Now, what are the events uh, in Amenhotep's life that would uh, seem that he, he would fit the character to be the pharaoh of the Exodus at this time? Well, let me back up a little bit to the previous pharaoh, uh, Thutmose III, uh, he reigned, uh, he's the only king of Dynasty 18 to have reigned more than 40 years. As I indicated before, Ramesses II uh, was in Dynasty 19, and he reigned more than 40 years as well. There are only two pharaohs who reigned more than 40 years in the whole New Kingdom period. Uh, now, the the significance of that is that when uh, Moses uh, fled from Egypt into Midian, into the wilderness, into the desert, uh, he was fleeing from a king who was uh, seeking to take his life. Then after 40 years in the desert, Moses is finally told by the Lord that it's okay for him to return to Egypt because, the text says clearly, those who sought to take your life are dead. And, uh, in fact, it goes on to say the king who was seeking Moses' life had died. So we need to look for a king who had reigned for a minimum of 40 years to qualify as the king from whom Moses fled into the, into the wilderness. And that king happened to be Thutmose III, who was the father of Amenhotep II. 
So when Moses comes back to Egypt, Thutmose III is no longer there. He's been succeeded by his son, Amenhotep II, and it is this pharaoh who suffered the plagues and this pharaoh uh, under whom the exodus uh, took place. Now, Dr. Merrill, we're talking about who is the pharaoh during the time of the exodus. Many of the movies that we've seen make it out to be Ramses, but indeed the evidence does point to Amenhotep, doesn't it? Yes, it does, clearly. Now, let me say something else about the, the impossibility of Ramesses II being the pharaoh of the exodus. Uh, he began his reign at uh, around 1290 B.C. and reigned until about uh, 1230, which is uh, about 60 years, an incredibly long reign for those ancient times. Now, uh, if we uh, assume, as the more liberal scholars do, that the city of Ramesses mentioned in Exodus 111 is named after Pharaoh Ramesses II, then we are, we are confronting an innumerable host of problems because we're told uh, of the birth of Moses sometime after the Hebrew slaves were used to build the city of Ramesses. And so Moses would have been born after uh, the reign of Ramesses had begun. There's no question about that. Now, uh, if then Ramesses II is the pharaoh of the Exodus who had to die before, uh, or uh, was the pharaoh of 40 years duration, I should say, whose death had to occur before Moses could return into the land of Egypt, then Ramesses could not have been the pharaoh of the Exodus. He would have died, uh, enabling Moses to return. And so that pharaoh would have to be somebody later than Ramesses II. Now, it's true there were many Ramesses that followed Ramesses II, so maybe it was some other Ramesses. But the problem here is that about uh, 1220 B.C., we have a pharaoh by the name of Merneptah, and Merneptah made an invasion of Canaan. And in this invasion, he says he encountered a people known as Israel. This is the first reference to Israel outside the Bible. Now, now think about this for a moment. If Ramesses died at around 1230, and yet at around 1220, uh, there's a pharaoh named Merneptah with whom uh, uh, the Israelites came in contact, then you've got Israel in the land of Canaan uh, 10 years or so after the death of Ramesses II. Now, uh, how could this be? Uh, when you've got to have uh, uh, 40 years for a wilderness wandering and then a number of years before Israel had, uh, had undertaken the conquest. So you see, chronologically, it simply will not work for Ramesses II to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. And so one has to simply disregard the chronological and other historical evidence of the Old Testament in order to make a case for Ramesses as the pharaoh of the Exodus. I see. Well, uh, Dr. Merrill, you might have uh, ruined the uh, movie The Exodus with Charlton Heston there for many of our people. But uh, other than that, it, it, it's a good movie, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, yes. Uh, I recommend it. I've seen it more than once. And, uh, but uh, it's, it's too bad that the facts of history have to be distorted in order to provide uh, some kind of scenario for an otherwise very fine film. <laughs> 
Yes. Now, also regarding the Exodus and describing what's going on in Egypt, you know, is it does it accurately describe? I mean, is it plausible that the Exodus could have occurred? And is the book of Exodus accurately describing the culture of Egypt? I mean, is there such a thing as these uh, nomadic groups moving in to Egypt and suddenly uh, exiting Egypt? And uh, yes, like this, this is uh, this has been true or was true uh, from the earliest times. We have. In fact, uh, in as early as the 20th century B.C., which would be way back in the days of Abraham and Isaac, uh, there are uh, inscriptions and murals, paintings, which show Semitic uh, caravans making their way into Egypt to buy and sell uh, products. And um, they're identified as Semites. They're identified as people from uh, Canaan in that region. And this is uh, already hundreds of years before any date of the Exodus. And from various Egyptian inscriptions, we discover that trading between the uh, Semitic world and the world of Egypt was very commonly practiced. Uh, And in fact, um, I had mentioned earlier in our program a reference to people called Hyksos, the Hyksos came into Egypt at around uh, 1730 B.C., and for 150 years they dominated the northern part of the country, and uh, in fact, dynasties uh, 14 through 17. Uh, this was a period of the Hyksos, and they were Semitic people. And uh, no doubt um, the Israelites were uh, connected somehow with the Hyksos from time to time, uh, the Hyksos were finally expelled, as I said, around 1570, and then uh, some years later, of course, the Exodus itself uh, took place, uh, some 70 years after that. In fact, uh, I've read that there are uh, pictures, uh, hieroglyphics, uh, portraying slaves making bricks, as described in the Book of Exodus, isn't there? That's correct, yes. It was not uncommon for the Egyptians to use uh, Hebrew slave labor, both in a period earlier, that is Semitic slave labor, I should say, and more generally, in a period earlier than the time of uh, of the Exodus, and for some time afterward. So this was not an uncommon thing at all. Right, and it also shows that the writer of Exodus was familiar with the culture of Egypt and what was going on at that time. Absolutely, and even his name, Moses is uh, indicative of a connection with Egypt. Uh, I had already mentioned a pharaoh by the name of Thutmose. Well, that Mose and the Moses name are clearly related, Uh, even though in Hebrew the name is Moshe. There's kind of a play on words there, but he is... um, he he bears then both a uh, an Egyptian uh, uh, name and a Hebrew name at the same time. Fascinating. Uh, you know, there's a, a fact here that a lot of skeptics attack. It's found in Exodus 12, and it records that when the children of Israel left Egypt, there were 600,000 men, not including women and children, 600,000 men. So if you include women and children, we're probably talking about uh, an exodus of possibly 2 million people or more. That's right. Now, 
how could a large group of people like that have been sustained through the Sinai Desert and, and crossed the Red Sea? It would have taken several days to cross the Red Sea with that many people, wouldn't it? Well, now we're getting into the realm of miracle, and you and I are comfortable with that, but not everybody is. And so clearly, if one cannot accept the possibility that God intervened in a supernatural manner to open up the Red Sea so that these thousands of people could cross in a relatively short period of time, and if he could sustain them for 40 years in the desert, uh, feeding them and providing for them supernaturally, if we're open to that kind of a God, then I think our problem pretty much disappears. Now, clearly, if everything has to be explained on a natural level, uh, and uh, according to modern uh, experience and observation, then we have a massive problem. But this is, uh, this is the problem with the Bible from beginning to end anyway. It, it's a book of miracle, and uh, that does not disqualify it from being a book also of history. But we must make allowance for history also to give account of unusual or even miraculous and supernatural events. If we approach the Bible with a mindset that such things are impossible, then, of course, uh, the Bible cannot say what it uh, really intends to say and, in fact, is saying. So in your studies, you accept that 600,000 number. I was taught that it, it could be a scribal error. There's actually only 6,000, and an extra zero got added later on, and then a scribe made another error and added another extra zero, and that's how we got 600,000. Well, the problem with that is that we don't have any manuscripts that have anything but 600,000. And when you're dealing with text criticism and the possibility of scribal errors, uh, you will not find these scribal errors in every single uh, uh, text of, uh, of a given passage. You might find it here and there, but uh, the fact that uh, there is no textual evidence apart from 600,000 would, uh, I think, make it impossible for this to be considered a scribal error. Now, uh, the other approach that many take, and there may be something to this, is that the word for thousand is very similar to another Hebrew word, which means some kind of a military contingent. The word for thousand is aleph. This other word is aluf. Uh, one is spelled A-L-E-P-H, the other A-L-L-U-P-H. Now, there was a time when there were no vowels in the Hebrew language, in the written Hebrew, and so it's uh, entirely possible that instead of reading Aleph, in these places, one could read aluf, meaning 600 units of men. Then the question is, well, how many men would be in such a unit? Well, maybe it's only 100. So if you have 100, then you have 60,000 instead of 600,000. And that uh, obviously uh, is, is something that even many critics could handle. Uh, so if you could reduce the total population by 90% and bring it down to uh, to 10%, then instead of two and a half million people, you might have 250,000, and perhaps that's a, a more comfortable number. Well, as Pat has pointed out, the Exodus is one of the most significant events of the Old Testament and in the life of Judaism, and it's attacked constantly by the critics. We need to be able to give an answer to those who would attack the reliability of the Old Testament in this event, and we're going to continue this discussion with Dr. Merrill next week on Evidence and Answers, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org.
We want to thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin on this timely topic and remind you that you can get this entire series at our website, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find some of the best resources on presenting and defending your faith in Christ to an increasingly skeptical world at evidenceandanswers.org. World religions, atheism, the cults, the occult, apologetics, scientific and philosophical arguments for the existence of God, creation and evolution, the reliability of the Bible, archaeology and history, and the end times, to name but just a few. You'll find Pat Zuckerman's interviews with leading scholars and speakers on the most crucial issues facing the church and the world. Go to evidenceandanswers.org and be equipped. Evidence and Answers is supported by you, the listener, who appreciates a program that gives good answers to good questions. Our calling is to do what the Apostle Paul did on Mars Hill in Athens. He presented and defended the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll help you do the same by the grace of God. Just go to evidenceandanswers.org and any gift or purchase of resources will be a tremendous encouragement to us. And remember that this entire series is available at evidenceandanswers.org. Thank you so much for listening to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharin. God bless and thanks so much for listening. Evidenceandanswers.org.